Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the Court, James Dickey on behalf of the appellants, Aaron and Joe Norgren, in this case. As the Court knows, we're here because Joseph and Aaron Norgren's Title VII rights were violated when Joseph was constructively terminated and Aaron was retaliated against for filing a charge at the EEOC. They were both also compelled to speak and stay silent on different issues of major public concern. This is an appeal of a dismissal under Rule 12, and we're asking the court to reverse the dismissal and remand back to the district court for further proceedings. And before I go into any further argument, I'd like to address any questions the court has for me at the outset. And if there are none, I'll just go ahead and make a few brief points. First, as I just mentioned, this is a de novo appeal of a Rule 12 dismissal. And that's important because the court is looking fresh at these cases while assuming the truth of the allegations in our client's favor. These are key considerations when looking at constructive discharge and retaliation claims. Second, indirect retaliation claims are analyzed under the McDonnell-Douglas standard. And under that standard, the allegations in the complaint only need to give plausible support to the reduced prima facie requirements. So there's a lesser pleading standard than a complaint normally analyzed under Iqbal. And that's the Wilson case from this court in 2017. The elements are engaging in a protected activity, suffering a material adverse action, and a causal connection between the protective activity and the adverse action. On the protected activity, um, is it just the EEOC charge you're suing about? Or um, there was some talk in the complaint about a religious exemption, and it's not clear to me that Aaron actually sought one. I think Joseph did, but Aaron may not have. They, they, do, they did both seek the same exemption based on their similar religious beliefs. Um, so that's the protected activity. It's, it's not just the EEOC charge, although in terms of the causal connection between the failure to promote and the EEOC charge, that three-week time period, that's the primary uh, causal connection that we allege. But there's also a causal connection between the refusal to provide the exemption, even though that's earlier in time um, by a few months. Um, in Wilson versus Arkansas Department of Human Services in this court, the court held that merely alleging that she was a victim of retaliation after having complained about discrimination based on race when she was ultimately terminated, that's it. That was sufficient to allege causation under this court standard. Well, on, yes. On the constructive discharge, mm-hmm. what's your response to the Appley's argument that he had said, I think, two or three weeks before um, the protected action ever occurred, that he was going to retire? Well, first of all, we do allege that he intended to work until he had been there for 30 years because he would have had a higher pension. Well, but he had already said he was going to retire. He said he was going to retire in part as part of his the hostile environment that had been created for him for years, even since 2018, going forward when he had a conversation with his supervisor who told him, if you keep talking like that, you're going to get fired. And that, that hostile environment that began to be created then was then exacerbated in September of 2020 when he said, hey, I, I disagree with the concept of these trainings. I don't want to take these trainings. These are contrary to my sincerely held beliefs. And the supervisor, Plog, said... You have to take the trainings. So by the time October 6th rolls around, when he writes that email saying, well, I'm going to retire, he still had a request for an exemption from the trainings out there. It had not been granted yet, and all he knew at that point was he was going to be forced to take them. So the, you know, the, in the October 6th email, you know, it's not alleged in the complaint. 
but even looking at it, it doesn't mean that he was acting purely out of some other motivation or other interest. He was acting based on this built-up hostility that had been created over years. And, you know, after 27 years of service at the DHS, he was just fed up and had had enough. Did they both go through the training, both Aaron and Joseph? Or it was I think it was unclear as to Joseph whether he had gone through the training. Joseph did not. Okay. Uh, Aaron did. And Joseph... Uh, he, he ended up being forced to quit before he actually went to the training. Aaron did go through the training. Okay. So I, I want to point out that um, you know, Joe's, Joe's allegations were he was forced to quit by DHS's hostile environment and denial of the accommodation because of his religious beliefs. Aaron alleged that he was refused even an interview for a promotion that he previously was told he was qualified for and that denial of that interview opportunity happened just three weeks after he filed his EEOC charge in June of 2021. I want to go back to Joseph for just sure. one second, then I'll let you finish on that. At any point, did he ever advise anyone in a supervisory position, human rights or human, uh, or, uh, <clears throat> human rights office or anyone, that he felt he was uh, being uh, harassed or subject to any kind of discrimination based upon religion? I believe the first time would have been when he requested an exemption from the, or accommodation from So the, he went through the six years of hostile environment without ever complaining? I believe that's what's alleged in the complaint, yes. So on the, also on the issue of um, DHS's retaliation related to Aaron Norgren, there are two different junctures in time to consider. Um, the first is that he, he sought an ex after he sought the exemption from the trainings, he was denied a day off for bad weather, in, which is not just bad weather. We know Minnesota winters are no joke in January in Minnesota. Um, and um, he had actually gone into the ditch the week before. But um, he was also denied that, which is nor normally given out as a matter of course. And, of course, the St. Peter Hospital is in a rural area in Minnesota. It's not exactly like the Twin Cities where there's clear plowing. And then the later denial of the promotion is the other item to consider in terms of that retaliation against Aaron. Um, Do you have to show that the person who got the promotion was not in the protected class? No, Your Honor, we don't. Not, not at this prima facie stage, we don't. Um, and I believe that's only a consideration on summary judgment, if I recall correctly, and I'm forgetting the case specific. I know we addressed that in our brief, though. Uh, but I don't believe that's the case here. On the promotion issue, um, one thing that troubles me is the qualifications. Mm. And in particular, you can argue that he was still qualified, but the temporary position had preferred recommendations and the permanent position had required recommendations. And from what I can tell, the required qualifications were higher. They were much higher than for the temporary position. So um, what's your response to the fact that he just wasn't qualified? Well, I think in our reply brief, we put together a chart that shows that the qualifications, that basically, if he wasn't qualified for the permanent position, then he wasn't qualified for the temporary either. And yet, um, Supervisor Wondra, who was the one who was actually overseeing that job, said he was qualified. He, he, they had a, uh, accepted his application to interview for the job, said, hey, I'm looking forward to you submitting another application for the permanent position in the future. And if you look at the, and again, in the chart that we have shows that 
everything has the disjunctive after it. Whether you want to call it required or preferred, it's or, or, and, or, and, or. And the last line in both things is, or an equivalent combination of the above. He could not have been qualified for the temporary if he was not qualified for the permanent. And if you look at it also, I mean, the idea that a permanent position for the exact same job somehow requires more than the temporary is kind of anathema to HR 101. But I'm not so sure about that, actually. I mean, you could have a situation where you're like, I don't think we can get somebody just for six months or something. So we got to kind of lower the standards. But if you want somebody for the next 20 years, maybe you aim a little higher. Well, I mean, I guess you could, you could, that could be a possible inference taken yeah. at some point, but we're taking inferences in our favor here. So at this point, I think that taking the inferences in favor of the complaint and given direct, Director Wondra's uh, responses, you have a clear example of that he was qualified for it in the eyes of the person making the decision. Also, the rate of pay is exactly the same for both positions. Um, <clears throat> One last point I want to make about uh, constructive discharge is that the standard is objective here. And the question is if someone who, is, who has similar beliefs to our plaintiffs would have continued in their position after 27 years of service, um, if they're continually bombarded with emails and videos, which Joseph alleges contrary to his views on equality under the law and traditional um, views of religious views related to gender and sexuality, would that be something that someone in that position objectively would be expected to continue experiencing? And we believe that the answer is no. And also, the last point I'll make here before I jump into my rebuttal time is that this issue of uh, qualified immunity for uh, and, and personal responsibility for Commissioner Harpstead, which we haven't talked about yet. And I think the key point here is to look at the Jackson versus Nixon case from this court in 2014, where the court said that, you know, if you create the policies at issue which cause the hostile uh, environment to have been created, that is enough for personal responsibility for individual capacity violations. And the second thing is, when it, when it comes to retaliation and when it comes to compelled speech, the compelled speech claims, the case law is really clear that even if you have employees, even if you're talking about training and diversity training and things like that, when you drag matters of public concern into these trainings, people still retain, employees still retain those First Amendment rights. And they can't be compelled to make statements or stay silent on issues of, of serious public concern. And if there's no more questions right now, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Pladson. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Nick Pladson, Assistant Attorney General on behalf of the Minnesota Department of Human Services and Commissioner Jody Harpstead in her individual capacity. I want to just start quickly with one comment that my opposing counsel made on the constructive discharge claim. We have to look at that as an objective standard of a reasonable person in his shoes, so whether it was intolerable to continue working. We have that person. His name is Aaron Norgren. He has the same beliefs as pled in the same complaint, or the, the parallel complaint. He still works, as of last week, at the Department of Human Services in St. Peter. There is no basis, based on the three allegations that they have pled, that this would rise to that level, even the underlying hostile work environment, severe pervasive standard, much less the much higher standard required for constructive discharge. So that claim should be out. Um, 
Secondly, Aaron Dorgan's complaints are all functionally failure to promote claims, and they all fail for the same reason, that he was objectively unqualified for the permanent position of the supervisor. And as Judge Strauss mentioned before, these are functionally different job requirements. They are not similarly situated. This is a situation where exactly what you suggested is the Department of Human Services struggles to fill positions. We need people to move into supervisory roles regularly to fill spaces for temporary periods. We also need people to try out and experience these positions for a time to gain additional experience that they can then use to obtain a permanent position. And as you all know, once you obtain a permanent government position, you hold a property right in that position. That's a significant commitment that the state is making once they move into a permanent position that differs substantially from the t temporary job classification that allows uh, an individual to uh, experience the job, try it out, allows DHS to evaluate how they are, and move them out of the position if they aren't working out. Um, secondly, the 1983 claim should be dismissed quite summarily based on qualified immunity. There is simply no controlling case law on the merits, on the points alleged in this case that was in existence in 2020 that would have alerted Commissioner Harpstead in her individual capacity uh, that this was a violation or the allegations impose a violation. Um, Significantly, too, the, um, one of the allegations is that uh, this supervisory comment back in 2018, um, plaintiffs alleged that they were motivated as an agent of Commissioner Harpstead in 2018 to make these comments to Joseph Norgren that he could be terminated for the way he thought and talked. I want to raise a point of judicial notice on that, is that Commissioner Harpstead was not the commissioner of the Department of Human Services in 2018. It was a prior gubernatorial administration. She was appointed in August of 2019. Function, factually implausible that that comment could have been made at her direction to an agent of her own. What happens, you know, I, that, that's curious, what happens when you have somebody, because it's kind of a fiction when you're suing somebody in the individual capacity, because oftentimes there's indemnification, but I'm just thinking, what happens if you have successive administrations and you have a different occupant of the position but that, but that same person in the same position is, is, is who committed the wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to sue the old commissioner who's no longer in the position, do you think? I th I'm just figuring out how, to, how that would work. Right. I mean, I think that, that seems to be the most straightforward. If they're individually liable for it, they would be individually liable for what they oversaw. They couldn't inherit liability for an individual capacity claim from somebody, you know, that, who would want to take on a, you know, particularly uh, a state agency under significant scrutiny. Uh, who, would want to, who would want to be the leader of that agency if there was a, a risk of personal individual liability. So I think you would, you would I, and, and, and the case law under 1983 is such that you require that individual conduct for that purpose, I think, exactly, um, that you can only be held liable for what you did, your involvement in this case. And I think counsel cites the Wilson case out of this circuit. Um, I think that case does apply, but I think Commissioner Harp said in this case is the warden in Wilson. She's the one who's the head of this 7,500 employee agency, the largest state agency in the state of Minnesota. Um, to have her be liable for every single training session administered throughout the state is simply implausible. Um, she, was, she was not there. Even the remarks she is alleged to have made, these are prefatory remarks at the beginning of a training session. That's really all they are. I mean, I understand what they're arguing and what they've pled, but the actual what Mr. Norgren was instructed to do is the email that he received from his supervisor, Paul Plug, 
that tells him, here are the modules you need to watch. You need to click on them, open them up, watch the videos, close them, you're done. I don't know if it's really relevant, but I'm going to ask a question anyway. Do we know where the modules came from? Were they developed by the Minnesota, in Minnesota, or are these some off-the-shelf that you buy? It's a question. A it's a question I don't know the answer to. I, I, can, I would be extraordinarily surprised if Commissioner Harpstead herself individually created these videos, um, which it seems to be the implication from the complaints. So, um, again, I also want to point out too, we did raise or we did address the First Amendment retaliation claims in the briefing. However, I believe that the plaintiffs have waived the First Amendment retaliation claims um, and they haven't really addressed them this morning yet. I'll, Mr. Dickey can indicate otherwise if I'm wrong about that. But they weren't stated in the um, statement of issues or the opening brief. I addressed them in my brief because we are here on de novo review. I wanted to belt and suspenders it, and the compelled speech claim that Mr. Aaron Norgren com complains about is devoid of any sort of allegation of compelled speech. His allegations are a First Amendment retaliation claim. The only compelled speech that is described in his allegations under 1983 are the caption, compelled speech. There's no other indication that Commissioner Harpstead, who the, that claim is against, compelled any speech uh, by Aaron Norgren. What about, it may not be compelled speech, but I just want to throw this out there, which is in the ordinary context, under the First Amendment, you don't have to sit around and listen to somebody. So, for example, if somebody were to give a speech up here and we were doing a CLE, you can walk out, right? You, you can't be forced to, to be in there. Is there something different here about the, the employment context, just as sort of a legal matter, that you can be required to sit through diversity training versus versus the normal situation in which you could just walk right out if you're a member of the general public. Right. Well, in, in here we're, we're talking about public sector employees, right? And um, in this court's decision in Altman versus the Minnesota Department of Corrections, that's exactly what Joe Jerlokin held um, back in the early 2000s, is that a public sector employer can require training, they can set the subject matter of the training, they can require people to attend, and they can discipline them if they don't attend. Um, now here, I, I know he uh, counsel indicated that Aaron Norgren did take the trainings. It's not in the record that we have that he took the trainings. There's no evidence that he actually took the training at all and certainly no allegation that he was disciplined for it. Understandably, I understand that he's alleging other things that were the consequence of him objecting to the training, but he was not disciplined because of the training. He was not disciplined for his reasonable accommodation or religious accommodation request at all. So, What would have happened though if, if somebody does, I mean we don't know this because Aaron ended up doing the training, but what would was there some sort of penalty if you didn't attend the training, like you don't get a promotion, whatever the case may be? It, there's nothing in the, in the compliance to allege that, and there's nothing that I've, that I've been able to deduce from what's in the record that there was any threat of any kind other than, hey, we need you to take these trainings, take the modules. Aaron and Joseph, Joseph might have taken one. We dispute that, he, that Aaron took them, um, at least on the record, but there was no nothing else happened. Uh, not, there was no threat. I encourage the court to look at the uh, email from Supervisor Plug, uh, where he just simply indicates, hey, we need to take a couple more trainings. So stack it up with all the other HR trainings that you're already required to take as a public employee and, um, and get through them. And that's it. There was no other implied or veiled threat. Um, and, and that's it. So if the court has no further questions, I... You're you may. Thank you very much.
Mr. Hade. Mr. Dickey, I should say. Once again, I'm having a hard time reading a list today. No worries, Your Honor. Just one moment, if you would. Thank you again, Your Honor. Uh, <clears throat> so first, I want to address in rebuttal this concept that because Aaron is still working there, that means that Joe obviously should have just kept working for another three years. Um, there's, I acknowledge that that's certainly evidence that's, that's, that's something the court can consider as to whether or not a person of ordinary firmness would continue in this situation. But that is not the end of the story. The court can still decide that a person in Joe's shoes who has um, been there for 27 years and who has been, um, has his particular views could, consistent with constructive discharge, have been forced out by virtue of what happened in this case. Counsel, I wanted to ask about the compelled speech claim, um, and in particular, um, if you read 303 Creative and our decision in Telescope, um, compelled speech requires you to take on something with which you disagree, being forced to say it. And here, all you have is you have to watch something. Now, if there was some allegation that you had to then sign something that said, oh, I agree with everything in this video, and, and you had to go around saying, I believe in diversity and this, that, and the other thing, you might have a claim, but I don't see where the compelled speech is. Let me point the court to page 45 of our opening brief where we outline some of these details. And one of the things that is required, and I believe if you look at Apelli's brief, uh, is stated as, as like the, the prompt for this particular module that we're talking about, is watch the whole thing to the end, including, for example, the full minute of silence for the murder of George Floyd. So every person who took the training did, in fact, uh, have to do that. Um, there are also other allegations in the complaint, including that the trainings instructed Person, people to stop using the phrase, I am not a racist, or I can't be a racist, um, to that to remain silent is to be, or to be indifferent is racist, uh, to admit the definition of racist as someone who has this particular viewpoint, to confess to racist policies and ideas you support. I acknowledge what Apelli's counsel said when he said that there wasn't any follow-up requirements. We haven't alleged that there were any follow-up actions that DHS took related to Joe or Aaron, except for with Joe, of course, constructive termination, and with Aaron, the failure to promote. So in our view, the, the, his request for an exemption and the subsequent failure to promote are linked. Uh, not as closely in time as the EEOC charge, but they're still linked. One additional question, which is the First Amendment retaliation. You heard opposing counsel say, well, I don't think those are really before us. And actually, in the opening brief, I didn't see much of anything on that. Your Honor, actually, we did state as one of the issues in the opening brief on, let's see, page two, I believe. Page two of the opening brief, issue number three, is stated as whether the district court erred by dismissing Joseph and Aaron Nargren's Section 1983 compelled speech claims by holding that each failed to plead sufficient factual allegations to establish a prima facie case that the First Amendment rights were violated. So, you know, is there a significant amount of time devoted to the First Amendment compelled speech claims? We have limited words, and I don't remember exactly how much time I used related to it, but we certainly argued it on reply, and I don't believe that we waived anything by um, being less thorough in our arguments on that issue. Um, also, the concept of that there can't be a threat inherent in, um, in training, 
um, in, in not in refusing to take a training of so, or some sort, which I think my friend on the other side had just mentioned. If you look at footnote 111 of our opening brief, we talk about the Altman case. We also talk about the Altman case on uh, reply on pages, I think, 22, 22 and 24 of our reply brief. And the reality is this court in Altman actually reversed summary judgment um, on with, with the concept that the plaintiff could, in fact, state a claim that's relevant there. Um, even if there's training for employees, you still have, you know, normal Pickering, Garcetti analysis where the question is, is the training bringing in issues of public concern, which is what Altman said there could be a situation where you're bringing in issues of public concern that are not just your run-of-the-mill diversity training requirements. Uh, again, uh, I think, and I think also as, I think Judge Loken concurred in that case, but not 100% sure. I think that what is clear is that there's an implicit threat that if you don't complete a training, you can be fired just for insubordination. And so that's the problem here. If you put someone through a training, uh, you don't want to be called insubordinate by refusing. And there's an implicit threat there. And if there are no further questions, I thank the court for its time and ask the court to reverse. Thank you.